seated. Well, we are still in our season of Lent, uh, at least for a couple more weeks. Like I said, Easter is fast approaching. And as you know, as we all know, Easter is a day of celebration. But we can't get to Easter without the drama that comes before. The Bible story tells of this great drama of God's redemption that ultimately leads us through the cross and to the resurrection. In our sermons over the past few weeks, Harry and I have been walking through the the high points of this drama, beginning with creation and how we were made in the image of God to be in relationship with God. But then how, as Genesis 3 describes in the fall, as humans turned from God and instead sought to do what was wise in their own eyes rather than trust in God's wisdom. The very thing that made them think that they would be God-like made them godless. They broke the relationship with God that they had, and that led to consequences. And Harry led us through this uh, progression of sin's consequences from darkness to lawlessness to brokenness to helplessness and ultimately to death. And then last week, we looked at the law of God. Specifically, the Ten Commandments, God's moral law for us. And so we pick up the drama here. But before we read our text today, let us pray. Lord, we come before you this day seeking your truth and your grace. Mold us and shape us into something new, into the men and women that you desire us to be. May your word speak to us in new ways, and may we follow your Spirit's lead. Amen. Our sermon text today doesn't, uh, it's not very far away from where we ended off last week. Uh, The Ten Commandments, which Harry read from, were Exodus 20, and we pick up today in Exodus 34, verses 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain, and do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, The Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance." He said, I hereby make a covenant 
Before all your people I will perform marvels such as have not been performed in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you live shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, context is very important here in the book of Exodus. Remember that the book of Exodus begins with the Israelites being under Egyptian slavery. Moses was called by God to confront Pharaoh to release the Israelites, which, you know, didn't go so well at first. Pharaoh wasn't just like, okay, sure, that didn't work out. So God made that happen. And we got the, the story of the ten plagues, the tenth being the event of the Passover. And yet, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they were not safe yet. Pharaoh, in his anger, and his army pursued the Israelites to the sea. When you think that God's people were cornered, God parts the sea and delivers the Israelites to safety. And at that point, it doesn't go so well for the Egyptians, right? But on the other side of the sea, the Israelites are now free. They've been delivered. They've been redeemed. And they rejoice. There's this great song of rejoicing for their deliverance in chapter 15. Yet it's only three days later after these great and wondrous events, that the Israelites complained of thirst. But God provided. Two months later, the Israelites complained of food, saying, even saying that they wished that they would have just stayed in Egypt to die. That's how bad they were complaining at this point. But still, God provided. And again, the Israelites complained of lack of water, but again, God provided. And we get to Exodus chapter 19. And it says that this this chapter begins on the third month after all of these wondrous signs. Not only coming out of Egypt, not only crossing through the sea, not only of being uh, provided for with food and water. Three months. And this gets us to the scene of God giving Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments, which Harry preached on last week. I mean, think about all these things that God has done to act on Israel's behalf, to deliver them, to save them, and all in a span of just three short months. You would think that these people would just be on fire for God. You would think that they would be in such awe of God at this point that they would have nothing else on their minds other than God and God's amazing love for them. You would think that there is nothing else that they would even want to do other than to worship God for his goodness. And you would think that at this point when God gives them his law, that they would be happy to obey, that they would joyfully obey God's commandments. You would think that, right? Well, you would think correctly, at least in theory. Well, I'll explain what I mean. In Exodus chapter 24, it says that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And look at this. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And he reiterates this in verse 7. It says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And why wouldn't they? 
given all that God had done for them. And I want to pause here also for a moment before we go further to say it's important for us to note that God secured their redemption and their deliverance by his own free grace, by his own choosing, before the law was given. It's not as if God said, all right, before I do all this stuff for you, here's this law. I'm going to need you to obey everything. We're going to see how this goes, and maybe, you know, in a couple months or a year, then I'll bring you out of Egypt. No, he, God reached toward the Israelites and saved them, delivered them, provided them with redemption before the law was given. But now we have this law. And through this law, God wanted to establish a nation of people for himself. And in doing so, God would extend this covenant to all the people of Israel. And God tells Moses uh, to tell the people that if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That's what God desired of the Israelites. And the people, as we saw, enthusiastically bound themselves to the covenant. They pledged their allegiance and fidelity and love for God, saying, yes, we will obey. So now the people of God are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and they lived happily ever after, right? Not even close. (laughs) What immediately happens next? Well, Moses and Joshua go up to the mountain to receive the two tablets of the law. And this, in my mind, I picture, and maybe just because we closed on a house not too long ago, but you know when you close on a house and you go to the the title office and you had to sign all the paperwork and all the the covenants and everything? I kind of picture Moses up there and God's giving him all the things. Like, okay, here's the law. He's like, okay, we're going to do it. But it's at this time, when Moses is on the mountain, what happens? Well, the people get tired of waiting. And they say to Aaron, make gods who will go before us. You know, as far as that Moses guy, remember him? We don't know what happened to him. So we think it's just best to go on ahead and we'll just make a god for ourselves of our own making. And so Aaron said, okay. And he collected their jewelry and they they formed this golden figure of a calf And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Like the sin of Adam and Eve, they did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And then after this, the text describes how they begin to just run wildly and indulge themselves in basically just anything that they wanted to do. Lawlessness. At the very time that God was establishing this covenant with them, They traded the image and the glory of the immortal God for that which they could just shape with their own hands. Something that they could manage, that they could control, that they could manipulate, that they could have power over. Well, the text says that God's anger burned against the people. We think about God's anger, and that might make us a little nervous. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but... You could see why in the text God's anger burned against these people. It's because these Israelites 
blatantly and audaciously betrayed God. God had bound himself in loyal love to them. And no sooner had the people zealously said, yes, God, we will walk in your ways, they betrayed him. I mean, if I were God, and good thing I'm not, but if I were God, I would say, well, I'm done with them. You know, I, try, I did all this stuff for them. I'm done with them. But God didn't do that. He allowed Moses to intercede for the people, and God relented of his anger. And then it was Moses, remember, who came down from the mountain, and he's mad, and he takes the, the tablets that God had inscribed, and he shatters them. And yet, after all of this, after, after the betrayal, the disobedience, the rebellion, the idolatry, after all of this, the Lord calls to Moses again, and he says, return to the top of the mountain so that God could again extend the covenant to the people. And that's what our text today describes. Uh, just picking up in verse 4, it says that Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And I want to pause here to briefly say that what follows is so significant to the Bible. God is going to, in these words, give a self-description, meaning that these words are God's own words about who He is. So, if God's telling us who He is, that's probably something we should take note of. And it's something the biblical authors took note of. These would be the most quoted words in the Hebrew Bible. Already, I've it, they're a part of our call to worship in Psalm 86. I use them in our assurance of forgiveness in Psalm 103, and they appear many other places as well. But hear these words for how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, if I had to guess, everyone here was probably happily listening, listening along to that first part. Uh, you know, it makes us happy when we hear about God being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. But then we get maybe a little more tense when we hear that last part. That by no means God will clear the guilty. And he will visit iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We'll talk a little bit more about um, what that means in a second. But it almost, it, 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 it makes us uncomfortable. But before we get there, let's kind of just briefly, line by line, walk through what God is saying about himself he begins, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, God's name revealed to Moses, this personal name, a God merciful and gracious. You know, typically when I think of the word mercy, I've always kind of thought of it as, well, mercy is something you, you receive if you're not getting punished for a crime that you committed. 
that you were extended mercy. You know, the, the judge was merciful to you, meaning that they didn't prosecute you for something that you really deserved to be uh, prosecuted for. Well, the word in Hebrew is it's actually more connected with this idea of compassion. God is a compassionate God. And actually, the, the word, the Hebrew word used has this connection with the word used to describe a mother's womb this intimate kind of nurturing compassion. It's this mother's womb kind of compassion that God has. Merciful and gracious. Gracious meaning one who shows and extends kindness. It's showing favor towards someone else. It's being generous. It describes an outward benevolence of giving of oneself for another. That describes God. Then we have slow to anger. The uh, literal Hebrew phrase is, that's translated as slow to anger, it's kind of fun. It's actually long of two noses. That, that's the, the, the Hebrew phrase, just like we have weird phrases in English, you know, break a leg and things like that. Well, this, this Hebrew phrase is long of two noses, basically long of nostrils. And we'll talk more about what this phrase means, but essentially translated, it means slow to anger. It means God does not get heated quickly. I don't know if maybe they thought of that because when they got mad, their nostrils flared or something. I, I don't exactly know what the picture is there, but that's, that's the image in mind. What's interesting is that, you know, a lot of people think, when they think of God, of the, the God of the Old Testament, they think the God of anger, the God of wrath, the God of, you know, justice and punishment. But that's not an accurate description of God. God is not one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. In fact, it says God is slow to anger. We'll get to the, more of that in just a bit, but let's continue on. In abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, this is, you, you may have heard sermons preached on his, this. This is the, the Hebrew word chesed, and after preaching this morning, I can't quite get all the phlegm to come out, but I'm just going to say hesed because I know y'all probably don't want to hear me hawking loogies up here. But we're just going to stick with hesed. But this word, translators have a hard time with this word because there's no great equivalent in English or really in any other language to describe hesed. Some translations use steadfast love. Some use loving kindness. Some use loyal love. You know, the what we have to do in English and other languages is try to combine words together to try to paint a bigger picture of what hesed means in the Hebrew. The phrase that, that I use for hesed is covenantal love and benevolence. And I use this because what hesed does is it describes a special kind of love, not the feeling of love. This isn't, you know, Valentine's Day kind of love. This is the kind of love that is enduring, and it's specifically reserved for a special kind of committed covenantal love, this love based on promises and upholding these promises. It honors the covenant, and it also goes beyond that, and it shows itself with actions. This is the kind of love that God has for His people. And then faithfulness. This probably have a good idea. This word also, you know, you think of it as trustworthy, firm and unwavering, secure and reliable. 
God is faithful. So recapping what we have so far, Yahweh, a God merciful, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That sounds so nice. We want to stop there, right? So if someone asks you what you believe about God, this is also a good line to start with. This is what God says of himself. So if you ever get asked that question, there's, there's your end. But now to the kind of the hard part. What about the rest of it? All right, so verse, starting verse 7, we still like this. Keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. So we're still good there. But then it kind of shifts and it says, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You know, on first reading, these, these lines almost sound contradictory. How can you have forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and then yet by no means clearing the guilty? And then going beyond that and saying, even visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation, you know, as parents and grandparents, that that terrifies us. That seems harsh. It seems unfair for the children and the grandkids. But we'll, we'll get to this in just a second. I think it's important not to gloss over this part of the passage. You know, I'm tempted to stop right above that line. Like, let, let's stop at the happy stuff and not get to, to what is below it. But what's below also has substance for us as we un- better understand the Hebrew Bible and the Christian faith. So we, before we make our own assumptions about what that passage means, let's let Scripture help us. The biblical authors know much more about this than we do, and thank goodness. And we don't even have to go that far. We don't even have to leave the book of Exodus to get a little more insight. Harry even read this last week. It's in one of the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol, which, again, that's what the Israelites had just did, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing, here's the same line, punishing children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and fourth generation, but then it adds, of those who reject, or in some translation, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Punishment here is reserved for those who reject God, those generations who reject God. What this also means is that each generation that perpetuates the sins of the fathers, that they are subject to the same covenant of the fathers. So the children who also reject God are subject to the consequences of their rebellion And God's covenant remains consistent for all generations. But I think the biblical authors also understood something else just about the world. That in a sense, the actions of one generation does have consequences for the following generations. I mean, for example, Israel knew all about this. Think about the southern kingdom of Judah and their disobedience to God. And God removed his protection over them And allowed the Babylonians to come and conquer and take them into exile. Those subsequent generations 
in a way, suffered for the disobedience of their fathers. That's, in a way, just kind of how history works. But what really, what people have a problem with today is that at first reading, we interpret this passage sometimes to mean that when parents turn from God, that then God eternally punishes the next, you know, three or four generations, even if they're innocent, even if they seek to honor God. There's no chance for them that they have to endure the punishment of their parents. And that's not what this passage intends. Again, let's let Scripture help us. And for the the best explanation of this, skip to Ezekiel chapter 18. And the whole chapter deals with this very topic. But to keep it brief, verse 20 summarizes it. So I'm just going to read verse 20. A child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be his own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be his own. And then even in the next few verses, it says that if a wicked person turns to the Lord, then great, that person's transgressions are forgiven. In verse 23, just a couple verses later, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from their ways and live. You see, what this is saying that is that at any time, God wants people to repent and to turn from their sinful ways and instead to pursue his path of righteousness and truth. Now, I want to switch gears because this, this also deals with a, another topic that's hard for us sometimes, and that's the topic of God's anger. Remember when when they made the golden calf. God's anger burned against his people. And I want to talk about this because it really helps us understand as we move through the rest of the Old Testament. And it tells us about the significance of the cross as well. And it's an uncomfortable topic, so I recognize that too. But God God getting angry punishing the guilty, this kind of fire and brimstone type theology, you know, the gates of hell come to mind. It's helpful for us to talk about it. And I think in this way, I'm going to start with just a few questions for you to ponder for yourself. Let's talk about our own anger. Can you have real love, like this covenantal type love, and not have anger at times. Let me clarify what I mean. I don't mean that love is defined by anger. Don't, don't get that confused. You know, don't, if you were to describe your spouse, don't start with, well, angry, we're not doing that. But if, and if someone is always angry, that doesn't mean they're very loving. But what I mean is this. If you love someone, a child, for example, and they make a poor life choice, does it not affect you in a deep way? Would we not get angry in a way when someone we love chooses something lesser for themselves than what they're capable of or what they're worth? Or if someone harms your child or grandchild, would you not be angry? When justice is or when injustice is done, do we not feel a sense of anger? Is all anger bad? No. Someone who is truly good will get angry sometimes, and especially 
when confronted with wrongdoing and violence. And let me flip the script a little bit and let me ask this. Would we really want a God who does not get angry at times? Do we really want a God who is always just nice, even in the face of wrongdoing, even in the face of injustice? Whether we are the victims or we are the perpetrators, would we want a God that's just nice all the time? Don't we want a God who desires us to choose to live in righteousness and holiness and who would be upset when we choose to behave in selfish or hurtful ways? Don't we want a God who desires to be in relationship with us and who is upset if we were to choose lesser things, lesser idols, if we were to follow other gods? Wouldn't we want a God that would be upset about that? We want a God who really, really cares about us. We want a God that loves like a true and righteous father. I've heard it said this way, if we have a God who never gets angry, we don't have a God who is in true loving relationship with us. So back to, I want to skip back to Exodus 34, and this isn't a verse that I read, but I think it's really important. It's verse 14, and it says, God says, For you shall worship no other God, because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And actually, it's mentioned in the Ten Commandments as well. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I don't exactly like the word jealous there, because in English, it brings to mind um, kind of a negative connotation that um, we act out in, in harmful ways in our jealousy. I think a better word to capture what the Hebrew is talking about is this word passionate. God is a passionate God, and he loves with a fiery passion for his people. And when his people betray him, and when they act foolishly, he is affected. He gets hurt. He gets angry by that. God gets most angry in the Old Testament at his covenant people, at the people that he has essentially married himself to. And this should make sense to us. Who are the people in our lives that we sometimes get the most angry at? It's the people we love so much. I think it's also to help about, or to to talk about how God's anger um, is acted out in the Bible. How do we see God's anger being displayed in the Bible? And I think this helps paint this picture that I want to paint Most often, God's anger is expressed in terms of God allowing humans to be handed over to the consequences of their own actions and desires. Essentially, what the Bible describes is that when the Israelites turn from God, God removes his protective hand over them, or as the Bible sometimes says, God hides his face from them. And basically, that means, okay, guys, you turn from me, have, you know, it's kind of the, what is that Burger King that says, have it your way? It's kind of that slogan. It's like, you want something else? I release you to go and explore that something else. But there's consequences. Now, after the Israelites go and they explore these other things, they turn from God, they do evil. Where do they turn to when they cry out? They turn to God. And who saves them 
God. I mean, that's basically what the whole book of Judges is about. The people did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so they were conquered by whatever nation was there, and then they cry out to God, and God delivers them. And this just happens over and over again, and we see it going through the rest of the Old Testament. And especially, uh, a great chapter on this is actually Nehemiah chapter 9, and Nehemiah himself provides a great reflection on God's character in the light of Israel's cycle of disobedience. And it doesn't stop there. Paul in the New Testament, in chapter 1 of Romans, talks about the wrath of God, the anger of God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed basically because of, uh, as a result of human idolatry. But he goes on and says, this is what the wrath of God looks like. And how he describes it, he says, Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity. And he repeats that line. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. You see, God's wrath, God's anger is displayed by God releasing them to their, their own consequences of their own desires. We have self-destructive tendencies. All right, I'm going to start trying to land the plane now. We started this sermon talking about the Exodus. And we saw the Israelites time and time again fail to honor God. But even so, God did not ever give up on them. As the Old Testament story continues through Judges and Joshua and Samuel and Kings and in the prophets, the people of Israel time and time and time again fail to honor God. The whole Old Testament is this continuous, almost repetitious story of how people continued in a cycle of turning from the Lord, of doing evil, of suffering from their consequences, and then calling out to God for rescue, because that's the only one who could rescue them. I know this is pretty heavy, but that's where we are. Before we get to Easter, before we get to the cross, we have to realize our own patterns of disobedience when we turn from God. And as we see in the Old Testament, God never abandons His people. God is always willing and ready to redeem His people when they truly repent and call to Him. The God of the Old Testament is not an angry God. In fact, the opposite, God is slow to anger He is a God who is passionate about his people, who desires relationship with his people. And this points us to where we'll go next week as we uh, pick up in the prophets, as the prophets point to this Messiah to come. I'll end with this. What about us? What about now? You know, we're not Israelites 2,000 years ago. Uh, I don't know anyone here that has taken their gold jewelry and made a little calf and said, here's God. What about us? How does this reach us now? I'd ask some of the same questions to you as I'd ask those Israelites back then. Has God not shown us his mighty works of redemption and salvation through the history of the Bible and ultimately to us on the cross of Christ? Has God not delivered us from the power of sin and death? Then why do we continue to turn from God? 
Why do we continue to serve lesser things? Why do we continue to serve idols that we've made for ourselves? At times, are we that much different than the Israelites? Why do we continue to seek to satisfy the desires of our flesh? Why do we have these idols in our lives? Or maybe the harder question is, do you even know what your idols are? Can we identify them? Can we name them? Can we confess them? Can we repent of them? If we can't see what our idols are, we're in dangerous territory because it probably means that we are not actively pursuing a growing relationship with the Lord. In this Lenten season, one thing about why it's a part of our church calendar is because it prompts us, it urges us to take a reflective look at our lives and to identify those idols and say, no, I'm turning to God, and it's taking us to the cross. Both the Old and the New Testament testify to this truth. There is nothing beyond God's power to redeem We mess up time and time and time again. We mess up. We turn from God. We go our own way. We worship other gods. We make idols of our own creation. But a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. If you feel distant from God, perhaps it's because you've been going your own way. God has not abandoned you. God does not abandon his people. Turn to him. God desires a people who sincerely turn back to him and allow his grace to restore us and to lead us into new life. God was and is still merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And friends, God loves you. Amen. As we continue in this time of offering, let that be our prayer. Dig deep. Consider what our your idols. Present those to God. Confess those to God. Repent of those to God and draw closer to the cross of Christ.